Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Um, my guest today is Nick Conley of Epibiome, E-P-I-B-I-O-M-E.com. Nick was a CEO for a number of years, and now he's uh, turned into chief scientist, probably a lot more intellectually interesting position. So, uh, Nick, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. How are you, Richard? Good. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah. My pleasure. So tell me about uh, uh, tell me about Epibiome. What do you guys do? Yeah, sure. So at Epibiome, we're developing next-generation antibacterials to combat the growing threat of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and also to engineer the human microbiome. So we use this technology called phages or these bacteria-specific viruses, which are really the natural enemies of bacteria. So in the same way that uh, we can get the flu, you you or me, we can also give bacteria a case of the flu. And the only difference is that when they get the flu, uh, they die because they only have one cell. In contrast Mm -hmm. to us, we can usually recover. Uh, So these phages are, you know, they're really time-tested. They've been been around for more than a billion years, and they've, they've been engaged in this evolutionary battle with bacteria. Uh, and yet they're still effective today. Well, that must mean that, you know, I've heard bacteria evolve and change and rearrange their DNA in response to environmental pressures. So I guess phages do the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that that's exactly the thing. And unlike small molecule antibiotics, which are incapable of really changing, it's up to it's up to us, it's up to some synthetic organic chemist to make new structures, which bacteria very, very quickly get around. Uh, phages can adapt uh, really almost mm. in real time. 
And these phages are everywhere. They're on us, they're in us, they're around us. They outnumber bacteria 10 to 1, and they kill about half of the bacteria on the planet every two days. So they're remarkably really? lethal. Yeah, huh. yeah, it's, it's profound. Uh, the, the really nice thing is they're completely safe for humans, but, you know, just remarkably lethal for bacteria. So That's what I was going to ask these, you. So there's no, there's no phages that attack human cells, but humans have their own phages, like white blood cells, right? Uh, so that's different. Um, I think what okay. you might be thinking of are macrophages. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, so what um, uh, th these phages are, are bacterial viruses. They're they're completely different, and uh, and and using them to treat infection is actually not a new concept. So, in the 1920s, the 1930s, Eli Lilly and some other pharma companies actually had robust phage research programs. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, penicillin, well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, but, but what happened was penicillin came along, and then they said, why the heck do we need these bacteria-specific viruses if we can just give a patient penicillin and kill everything? You know, of course, the only good bacteria at the time was a dead one, uh, but today mm. we, know, we know a lot more. We know about the, the, our, our microbiota. We know about all these beneficial bacteria. And we know that it's probably not a good idea just to eradicate everything. And, you know, of course, right. in the 20s and 30s, people didn't have the same scope. They didn't really realize how horrible antibiotic resistance would become. Uh, so, mm. so antibiotics, you know, were just, you know, penicillin was broadly embraced. And, and it really put a hold on phage research for a long time, uh, sort of like gas prices. You know, when, when, uh, when, oil is, uh, when oil is $20 a barrel, you don't go to the Canadian tar sands to get it. Uh, but when oil is $100 a barrel, now it makes a lot more sense to investigate more difficult uh, sources. Um, so uh, the, the really neat thing is, uh, you know, if you were in Stalin's Red Army, you were actually issued phages as part of your rations. So if you got some sort of intestinal infection uh, or a wound, uh, perhaps a, a gunshot, uh, you could actually just pour the phages on it. And, and it would address many of the common bacterial pathogens. Quite remarkable. Uh, uh, even today, you can be treated with phages if you go to the country, Georgia, uh, at the Eliava Institute, or go to Poland, uh, which is the, the, the Herzfeld Institute. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this is certainly not a new idea, uh, but what is new are the tools that we have available to actually develop phages into drugs uh, that fit within the pharma paradigm. So um, I don't know much about phages. I mean, are they cultured like bacteria? Like, how do you give someone a you know, a phage medicine, um, is it come in a pill form or is it like on fermented food or how do, how do people get phages and how do you culture them to have enough? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, you culture bacteria uh, on, on a growth media. You know, we're all familiar with these Petri plates that are sort of the generic, you know, biologist scientists uh, with the Petri plate. In the same way that you grow bacteria on the media, the, the, the foods that they eat, you grow phages on, on, on their media. And the, the nice thing for phages is that their media is actually a lawn of bacteria. So what you do is you, uh, if you want to discover a phage, uh, you grow a lawn of the bacteria that you want to kill on a Petri plate. Then you go off somewhere where there's a really good source of phages, like wastewater, the sewage, and you take that and you filter it. So you get rid of all the bacteria that are in that, and you just take what goes through the filter, and a lot of those are phages. And you put them on the plate of the bacteria that you want to kill, and what you see is, is, is a plaque, a region where a single phage infected a single bacteria, and then it propagates outward in, in, a, little, in, in a little circle, like a ring. And it, it's basically like a bacterial colony, but it's really like an inverse, right? It's an inverse colony. It's sort of where the phage grew and killed the bacteria. 
Um, so, so culturing phages is actually very similar to culturing bacteria. Um, the only difference is you do it on a lawn of bacteria, but it's all also done on a petri plate. So, what are um, I'm trying to picture phages. Like, what are some similarities phages have with bacteria, and what are some differences? You know, appearance, um, life cycle, uh, various things about them. Just so listeners get like a context of what a phage is, and it's not some yeah. You know, they can have a picture in their mind's eye. Yeah, well, they should think of uh, they should think of an alien uh, because really that's what they look like. They're uh, they're quite remarkable. Uh, I I uh, I highly recommend uh, doing a Google search for uh, uh, the Burning Man uh, phage camp. So for any burners, uh, they're they're probably already familiar with phages because there's this huge uh, fire breathing phage uh, that, that that was part of the phage camp at Burning Man. So. Um, but really, uh, what they what they look like, and, and I'm sort of generalizing because they're all different sorts of phages. Um, but they have a a head uh, uh, to them, and that's called the capsid, and it contains the DNA that they're going to inject into the bacteria. Uh, then they have this long mm. uh, uh, tail uh, coming off of the uh, off of the phage, and that's literally like a syringe. That's what the DNA is going to it's going to travel through this head. Uh, uh, and then it's going to be injected into the bacteria. And, and phages often have these tail fibers uh, uh, that they use to bind to specific bacteria. Uh, so they really have, you know, sort of think of three parts. The tail fibers that allow them to recognize the bacteria that they're going to kill, uh, uh, the, 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 the tube, or the, the tail that the, the DNA goes through, and then, and then the head, the capsid. Yeah, it looks like um, like a spider, you know, with like a proboscis or something, or like a giant bug. Yeah, that's a great stuff. analogy. Yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, but but you know, sort of uh, less creepy than a spider, right? Because uh, these phages, even though they're viruses, uh, have the you know potential to be profoundly beneficial to humans. Uh, you know, we uh, we're in this situation. A lot of people refer to it as the post-antibiotic crisis, where our antibiotics are failing. And you know, some people know about it and are really terrified, and, and some people uh, don't care. Um, but 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 it, everyone should care, and and it's actually not why you think. Uh, most people, when they hear antibiotic-resistant bacteria, they worry about dying of a bacterial infection, and that's actually not the that's not the horrifying part. Uh, the horrifying part is that antibiotic resistance gets bad enough that it changes the the benefit to risk ratio uh, for every common surgical procedure that we have today. So, you know, really? take for take for example, uh, LASIK, you know, laser eye surgery, uh, wisdom mm-hmm. tooth removal, uh, tonsillectomy, uh, vasectomy. Uh, ACL repair. All of these procedures that make our life, our lives really nice, but they're not really, you know, life or death. Um, all of those will right. go out the window uh, because it'll basically be too risky. And, you know, wow. what we face is the prospect of the only procedures, the only surgical procedures that, that we might be able to do in the near future are those that prevent imminent death. So, you know, <laughs> what people should be terrified of is losing the last hundred years of surgical advances. Not necessarily wow. of dying of a, a bacterial infection. Uh, if you're if you're fairly young and healthy, uh, your risk is, is low um, uh, from from dying of a bacterial oh, by, infection. By the way, I don't I don't. When you get surgery, do they give you any? I mean, it's maybe it's a dumb question. Do they give you antibiotics when you get surgery? I don't know. Uh, often, often, uh, many many procedures there are antibiotics. Uh, sometimes prophylactically, um, but uh, whether you got them or not. Um, you know that that's not the the big deal. The the big deal is just having someone cut on you. You know, having a, a having a cut in your in your barrier function exposing, of your skin makes you very prone. Exposing to, your insides to the outside, right, is a problem. Exactly, exactly. And 
And and just if these back, you know, these antibiotic resistant bacteria are around and they're 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 uh, you know they're everywhere and they proliferate, that that would be a, a tremendous risk um, because then antibiotics won't help you, and then you'd have to reevaluate uh, the you know whether or not you would actually want to be cut in the first place. Uh, already today, uh, many of the procedures that we have already have a, a risk benefit ratio that's actually very close to um, you know balanced. Uh, where where wow. it almost makes as much sense not to do the procedure. You know, a lot of times horrible. You, you know, you'll have back you know back pain and you know surgeons love to cut. Um, but but already today yeah. there are many procedures that are done that actually aren't even that beneficial. And and for that ratio to go even further, uh, you know, for that risk factor to increase further, will just eliminate a huge fraction of of, of procedures. Well, what that, what that happens? Are. Yeah, what happens? What, so when you said the risk factor, like what happens? Are there, is there a few certain strains of bacteria that will end up killing you if you have surgery and they infect you? Or what's the mechanism of what goes wrong and what are the bacteria responsible? Sure, sure. So so hospitals are teeming uh, with bacteria. If you're a healthy person, the worst thing that you could ever do is step foot in a hospital. Um, it's really the, the the absolute last resort. You want to stay out, uh, try, try never to become an inpatient, um, stay away. Um, so uh, so the, you know, the bacteria that are responsible vary there are some very scary, scary ones out there, and, and, and they're in the hospitals. And, you know, the sorts of things that, that I would think about, um, you know, are, are C. difficile, uh, this, this uh, horrible bacteria that if you spend enough time in a hospital, really, once you're admitted on the order of a, a few weeks, uh, you are almost likely, uh, almost certainly going to be contamin- uh, co- become colonized uh, with the C. diff. So, you know, after a couple of weeks in the hospital, you're, you're going to be colonized no matter, you know, how well you wash your hands, things like that. And then if you're treated right. with a dose of antibiotics for some other reason, uh, like you're getting some other surgical procedure, or you have some other infection, now that will create the perfect opportunity for the C. diff uh, to take over and establish dominance, sort of to, to fill that vacuum that was created. And that can be life-threatening. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but I personally don't want to die um, of uh, bloody diarrhea and uh, a GI infection, and yet um, uh, that's no. sort of the yeah that's you know that's uh, that's that that happens. Um, fortunately, there are some some good therapies that um, are being developed: fecal micro, microbiota transplant, where you literally take a mm-hmm. healthy mm-hmm. Uh, human donor sample and, and transplant it, is, is one of them. But one of the really exciting things: uh, 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 a researcher in Germany uh, um, found that. You actually don't need to do a, a fecal microbiota transplant. You don't have to transplant live bacteria. What he found is that if you took the healthy donor sample and filtered it through a 0.23 micron filter and you transplanted the filtrate, which really probably only has the phages and some other biomolecules, you could actually cure right. six out of six multiply recurrent C. diff infections. So it's likely the wow. phages that, that might actually be what's you know, providing all of the activity. Yeah, I was going to ask you why would that, right, why does that work? Do you think it's the uh, well, phages? Um, you know, I think it's a, a great question, and mechanistically, uh, that hasn't been worked out yet. Um, it's possible that there are C. diffages um, in healthy fecal, fecal donor samples, um, but, but there could be uh, other mechanisms. This is amazing. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of companies now that have, you know, studied the microbiome. Only one biome mentioned phages at all. Um, no one seems to know much about them at all. What, tell me about um, epibiome. Like, let's get into now... You know, what have you? What are you studying in regards to phages, and what have you learned about what's inside of us in our microbiome? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, uh, you know, phages are really the dark matter of biology. 
we know, despite having known about them for 100 years, we know almost nothing about them except for a very small subset of phages, the T-series uh, for E. coli. And, and that, that's really an artifact that was created early, early in phage work. Uh, there was one professor who sort of owned everything, and you never got a paper published unless you sent it to him first. And he insisted that everyone study this very narrow subset of phages because he thought that if everyone studied different phages, they'd never make any sense out of, out of what was going on, out of the biology. Um, unfortunately, this, you know, uh, I mean, you could argue either way, but uh, unfortunately, we, uh, we know very little about the breadth of phages. Uh, what we do know is that there are 10 times as many phages on the planet as there are bacteria, uh, perhaps 10 to the 31. Now, that's a, that's a profound number, right? Uh, you know, think of 31 zeros. Uh, behind behind that one, um, and they're an order of magnitude more phages than bacteria. Yeah, they're the most uh, diverse uh, uh, thing on the planet. Um, in theory, every bacteria has a phage that infects it, and and most will have many. And these phages have all sorts of genes. Uh, so so that they have in the same way that the bacteria in our gut are making all sorts of things, and many of them are probably responsible for our health. Phages have this capability of making, you know, many different uh, uh, things as well. And half of the genes, when we sequence phages and we look at them, almost half of the genes are unknown. We've never seen them in any organism before, and we have no idea really? what they do. And and so there's this really rich, you know, set of, of genes that are, you know, are, are being, um, that are encoding proteins uh, that, that we have yet to discover. And, you know, personally, I think there are several Nobel Prizes uh, left to be discovered in phages. Um, you know, phages have already produced some very important discoveries. You know, CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas came uh, as a, you know, a, a defense mechanism uh, against uh, against phages. And, uh, okay. you know, I, I think we've really, we're just looking at the tip of the iceberg. This is really amazing and interesting. I never knew any of this. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but but I, I didn't finish answering your question. You know, uh, why is EpiBiome looking at phages? I think that's motivated by the fact that uh, they're... Uh, you know that they're they're powerful for uh, for not only treating uh, bacterial infection but also for for manipulating the microbiota uh, because they're very specific. Uh, so it's not this broad spectrum sort of kill everything. We can you know very uh, surgically uh, with the scalpel go in and 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 remove a bad actor. So what's different uh, about epibiome? Uh, you know, phages have been around and studied for 100 years, is, is that we saw an opportunity to use tools that are only newly available. So our thesis was that by combining high-throughput automation with next-generation sequencing, with machine learning, and with synthetic biology, that we could finally bridge the gap between phages as this novelty therapeutic that were sort of used, you know, as a, as a novelty, and phages as a scalable drug product that fits within the pharma paradigm. And we've already had a, a meeting with FDA and it looks like they're they're very receptive. So there's nothing that is there, there's nothing that prevents phages from going into the clinic and becoming a drug. I guess this is like a fight fire with fire, a fight biology with biology type thing. That is hard. Exactly. Yeah. Nature's a nature's a brilliant engineer. Uh, she uh, she will find the solution. And uh, you know the only paradigm in treating bacterial infection that has reproducibly been shown to fail is small molecule antibiotics. So, you know, in the in the so because it's a dumb solution compared to like a, a phage that can uh, change its its DNA and uh, you know morph as the bacteria morphs. 
Exactly. I, I'm a great synthetic organic chemist. I came out of Stanford, worked with Bob Weymouth, worked with the Nobel laureate W.E. Murner. Uh, but, but even the best organic chemists in the world uh, who are working full-time cranking out you know, trying to discover new classes of antibiotics and, and doing all of the work to, to tailor the structure so they're as suitable as drugs, will never be able to keep up with, with bacteria. Uh, it is a losing fight. Um, it, it used to be in the 60s and 70s when a new antibiotic was released. Uh, it would take a decade before anyone observed clinical resistance. Uh, today, when, when a new antibiotic, uh, you know, is approved, comes to market, which is actually quite rare, uh, it takes less than one year before the first resistant clinical isolates are observed. So, you know, imagine trying to develop an entirely new class of drugs and get approval mm. in a year. It, it, it'll never, you know, it won't happen. Uh, so, so that alone says that humanity is, is doomed. I mean, we are, we're in big trouble unless we can develop a new paradigm for antibiotics. And I believe that that is phage therapy. Well, what's um okay, interesting. Is there anything that preys on phages? You know, what happens when a phage uh, you know kills a bacteria? Is it like a bee where it dies because its stinger breaks off, or can the phage go on and kill more bacteria? I mean, tell me more about these strange creatures. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are two classes. You know, just for for sort of general purposes, we can sort of put uh, phages into two classes. Uh, you'll have what are called temperate phages. And temperate phages can infect bacteria, and they can either integrate their own DNA into the bacterial DNA so that when the bacteria divide, the phage divides as what's called a prophage. And then at a later date, it can decide to come out. It can kill the bacterial lysid uh, and come out as an actual phage. So that's a temperate phage. It, it can, either, uh, can either incorporate its DNA into the bacteria and divide along with it, or it can just kill the bacteria right there and make a lot more copies of itself. The second kind of phage uh, would be called a lytic phage. A lytic phage is only going to bind to the bacteria, infect it, use its cellular machinery to make more copies, and kill the bacteria. So it will not integrate its genome into the, into the bacterial genome. And for therapy purposes, we use exclusively lytic phages. Um, the reason we don't use temperate phages is because, one, we, we always want the, the phage to kill the bacteria. We don't want it to incorporate its genome into the bacteria and let the bacteria continue living happily. Uh, but also, we don't want the phage to be able to put any genes into the bacterial genome uh, because, you know, if it did, it could do bad things. Uh, for example, both E. coli 0157 and the bacteria that causes cholera were both completely innocuous. They were completely harmless until they were infected by a phage that gave them the gene to encode a toxin. So that's why we don't mess around with temperate phages. We only use lytic phages. Why would a phage do that? It's just so it can, it's just kind of odd. Like, why would it partner with the bacteria? Is it just using it again to create more of itself? Or, you know, why would sure. it? I can see it yeah, piggybacking well, on the cellular machinery to make more yep. copies of itself, but why would it give a gift to the bacteria to, you know, why would yeah. it do that? Well, the last thing any virus wants to do is to kill all of its hosts. Uh, because uh, a virus uh, cannot, uh, you know, it, it can't really survive by itself. Uh, so, so you know, what we see is a, a balance. Uh, uh, the most successful viruses are the ones that uh, don't completely eradicate their host. Once they do that, they have no way of propagating anymore, right? Um, so, so phages uh, have an incentive to, um, you know, to give bacteria a competitive advantage. Um, you know, in the context of some, you know, some community, uh, because the phages have to propagate in the bacteria. Now, for the phages to actually uh, get out of the bacteria again, they have to kill it. 
Um, so, so it's sort of this, this trade-off. And by using exclusively lytic phages, uh, we, we use phages that will only bind, only infect, and only kill, uh, not, not incorporate the DNA into the bacteria. Hmm. Yeah, so, uh, uh, a virus that's too good at killing its host it doesn't last very long. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, the, uh, do the phages have any predators themselves? Does anyone eat the phages or, you know, how do they, I would think they would go out of control if, if not, they must have something that attacks them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, uh, I think the thing that keeps phages in check are, are really a couple of things. One is they don't have the same, uh, repair mechanisms, uh, that bacteria have. Um, you know, when they exist outside of the bacteria, uh, they're really just a protein. Um, you know, there are many, you know, just, just, just a protein, like the same protein that makes up a steak, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so they're, they will decompose with time. They have no way to keep their, you know, to prevent oxidation, uh, to keep their DNA, uh, uh, fresh and, and unchanged. Um, so in sunlight, uh, the half-life of a lot of phages upon exposure to UV is only like three hours. Um, so, so they're not, uh, they're not remarkably stable like a small molecule, which can persist for a very long period of time. And that's actually why we have antibiotics and, you know, various water supplies and, uh, things like that. So, so there's that first thing. But the second thing is that the bacteria evolve. So, uh, there's selection pressure and the bacteria that find ways to get around the phage will survive. And, you know, one, one common way that a bacteria gets around a phage is it stops expressing the thing on its surface that the phage uses to bind to it. So it, it'll just stop okay. making that or, 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 you know, a mutation will develop that somehow changes it. And we can actually use that to our advantage because we can target phages to structures on the surface of bacteria that the bacteria need to cause disease. So if the bacteria mm -hmm. gains resistance to the phage, it does so at the cost of giving up its ability to cause disease. And we have funding from both the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well as the U.S. Department of Defense to pursue that strategy. Wow. It's weird. And phages, like viruses, they seem in this um, this state between life and non-life. I mean, you know, it's funny. I know there's a crazy discussion, but what constitutes life and a will or an intent? And phages seem on that very border, you know, because they're so simple. And so do viruses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, when you sort of take a really rigorous definition of life, uh, you could say that phages don't produce waste products. Um, uh, so you could exclude them by that metric. You know, I think part of it is, is semantics. Um, I know a lot of people in the phage research community will, will tell you that they're very much alive. Um, and, uh, you know, I certainly think that they're a, a major part of the, the balance of our microbiota. I mentioned uh, Stefan Schreiber's paper earlier. Uh, using um, uh, fecal microbiota transplant filtrates to treat mm -hmm. C. diff. But, uh, you know, I think that there's emerging evidence showing that, that phages are, are responsible for many things, the balance of our, our gut microbiota, perhaps our skin health. Uh, you know, whether we have acne or not may, may be determined by the particular P. acne phages uh, that we have on our skin. Uh, so I think it's a really exciting time. I think we know very little about, uh, you know, about all of the phages that are present and what they're doing. But I, I think that you'd be hard-pressed to argue that they're not a really important part uh, of our microbiota and our microbiome. What do you think they're doing inside the average person? Are we keeping the bacterial colonies in check? Or, uh, like, what are their actions and what yeah. are things happening inside the gut? Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think that they are um, uh, responsible for uh, uh, perhaps the stability uh, of our 
microbiota. So, you know, it can be very difficult to change uh, your microbiota. You can do it with diet. So you could switch, for example, from a very high carbohydrate to a very high fat diet, and that will dramatically mm-hmm. change the bacteria in your gut. Um, but, you know, aside from that and perhaps taking antibiotics, uh, it can be fairly difficult. And certain microbiomes are very stable. For example, your oral microbiome. And the phages may play uh, a key role in the stability. So they may keep, uh, they may keep certain uh, bacteria in check. Uh, that otherwise might proliferate uh, wildly and, and actually take over a community. Uh, but it's still very early days, and I think uh, one of the reasons uh, that that, um, uh, that that phages really haven't been studied as much is because they're difficult study. You know, the the amount of DNA, you know, just getting enough DNA out of an extraction from from phages to sequence is is, is challenging. How come? Um, you know, I I think a lot of it is is just uh, you know you've got one. Uh, genome uh, per phage capsid. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, so you've uh, you've really got to get those phages to uh, high enough titer that when you do the extraction, you get enough DNA. Uh, in contrast, mm-hmm. it's okay. very easy to get a huge number of bacteria. Um, uh, they grow very well. Um, so it's 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 a little bit more work. And then once you have the phages, you know, if you want to go on and sequence them, there's an extra step. You've got to get rid of all of the bacterial DNA uh, first. Uh, otherwise, you contaminate your sequencing with, with, with bacteria DNA. So it's, it's really just, it adds a, a whole other level of challenge. You know, it's challenging enough to try to study the bacteria in places, and, and it's difficult enough to culture the bacteria. But if you want to culture phages, you actually have to be able to culture the bacteria first, because the phages grow right, on right, the bacteria. Right. So it, it's like taking something that's already hard and adding a whole other level of complexity. And I think that's why very few people... Uh, study it, and among those, you know, uh, very few, uh, just really uh, top caliber uh, groups that uh, have a mastery over sort of all of the elements of phage. Well, so I was going to ask you, where do phages hang out? They hang out where bacteria hang out, right? Exactly. If you want to find a phage, you go to where you find the bacteria. So, you know, like you talked about diet being a big modulator of your gut microbiome. Um, has anyone studied the fact that, okay, well, if you eat various things, you're feeding certain bacteria more and maybe starving others, but maybe the food you're eating, maybe if it's fermented and it has bacteria on it, that means it has certain phages that come along with it. Maybe that's part of the power of fermented food, for instance. Maybe you're actually changing your microbiome because you're ingesting uh, certain kind of phages that you didn't have before. Has anyone looked at that? Absolutely. Uh, So phages, uh, there's a really interesting history, uh, uh, phages and fermentation. So, you know, if you want to do something like uh, make uh, cheese or something like kefir, fermented milk, Mm -hmm. lactobacillus phages can actually destroy your fermentation. So many people that ferment uh, with bacteria uh, use uh, uh, use phage-resistant strains. Uh, so uh, DuPont, uh, I believe, has done uh, quite a bit of work uh, in this area and several others uh, on developing these phage-resistant strains for fermentation. But for people that ferment, you know, at home, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, buttermilk is just uh, unpasteurized milk that's left to sit at room temperature. And whatever natural bacteria were there on the teat of the cow or uh, what will actually do the fermentation in the milk. And while it would mm-hmm. be illegal to sort of sell that product today, there are many people who do uh, do exactly that, but their own make their own buttermilk, uh, and that sort of composition would be very rich uh, in phages. Uh, it's it's really and not people, clear how many how many you get from from uh, uh, sort of a commercial fermented food. Um, many of those uh, 
that you buy, like the kefir that you buy at the grocery store, it's fermented, but then it's pasteurized, and then they add back mm, the lactobacillus mm. and the beneficial bacteria. So, you know, in that sort of process, you probably wouldn't have too many phages. But, you know, to say that you wouldn't have too many phages certainly doesn't mean that you have zero, because they're everywhere. They're already on us, they're in us, they're around us. They outnumber bacteria 10 to 1. Yeah, it's just so weird, you know, like um, antibiotics and traditional medicine, it looks at like a very small part of the puzzle. And then now I've been talking to microbiome companies, and that's a whole huge missing piece of the puzzle. And now here we are, now we're talking about phages, and that's yet another missing piece of the puzzle. So it, it just sounds like you really need to look at things with all of this in mind in order to do proper science. Yep, I think you're you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, you 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 think of something like something as as simple, and I say that in quotation marks, as simple as nutrition. You know, this is something that impacts us all, right? We all eat three, four, maybe even sometimes five times a day, uh, and and yet we we understand so little about it and how it affects our health. Uh, yet we all do it, and we've, we've you know tried to study it for a long time. You know, I think uh, the microbiome is is really in the same place. Um, you know, there's so many factors that are important, including you know the the genetic background of the person, um, things like that. You know, their lifestyle. So it's going to take a while uh, to unravel this. But you know, the the exciting part is that for the first time, we really have all of the tools. Um, so you know, I think over the next few years, we're going to see some really exciting things. Uh, some unknown connections, um, uh, uh, ways to treat different ways to treat diseases, uh, perhaps like Crohn's disease, uh, anti, you know, uh, autoimmune disease, inflammatory diseases. Um, yeah, I think we're we're really on the precipice of something exciting. Yeah, I know. I, I know you can't give away, you know, things that are proprietary to you, but what are some uh, really interesting or amazing things that you've learned recently in your work, and what kind of products are you guys uh, working to make specifically? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think some of the things that uh, were surprising is, is actually how well phage therapy works. So when we do, uh, for example, uh, an animal study, um, how effective uh, these things are at treating infection and, and how shocking uh, it is that, that people are dying of these multi-drug resistant infections today uh, when there's something very simple, really, that, that already exists that, that works so well. Um, you know, I think that, that that's one of the things. In terms of products, we are developing uh, a drug candidate uh, to take into the clinic. Uh, we expect to be in the clinic uh, sometime next year. Um, uh, I won't uh, go into any details on the particular indication, uh, but it is one that uh, costs uh, um, basically uh, causes a lot of suffering and, and costs a lot of money to treat. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, as a company, we also have a product called Epiphany, uh, which is a bacterial profiling service uh, where we take samples uh, from clients and we return to them uh, what's called a biogram, uh, a really uh, accurate uh, makeup of the bacteria present. And we can usually get to the species level uh, using a number of tricks that we've developed. Uh, so this is a, a service uh, business to you know start to, to make sense of what's going on. And it's been very popular uh, 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 food food fermentation. So we have some clients that are that are doing food fermentation. Um, mm. uh, uh, I think there's uh, lots of applications in agriculture that have been of interest in, in wastewater and water treatment and uh, a number of other places. Uh, so really, uh, the company's two focuses are, are drug development and then um, the service business for bacterial profiling. Well, are you doing phage profiling or are you just doing bacterial profiling? 
You know, we do lots of that internally. We don't offer it as a service. Uh, but, you know, it, it, certainly if we had a customer who came and said, hey, you know, I'd love to learn about the, you know, the phages and, and they were large enough, uh, we could certainly take that business. Uh, but we're not really looking to do sort of the one-off uh, thing that some of uh, some other people in the, the bacterial profiling space are doing um, for phages. Uh, part of it is, you know, we could do it, um, but, you know, the data that we gave back wouldn't actually make a lot of sense uh, to the average customer, nor would it really be that actionable. Right. I, I understand because people don't understand phages very well at all. Yeah. And even um, today, if you get a list of the bacteria that are in your gut, you sort of say, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's got entertainment value, but, you know, I'm really interested in, in how can we take data and make it actionable to improve health. And and I think we're getting there. Yeah. I've, I've you know, sent my sample into Ubiome and Thrive and yeah, I've done a bunch of them, you know, and I've gotten back data, yeah. but you're right. I, I I mean, I have like you know, lactobacillus, whatever. Is. I mean, what what does that do for me? I don't understand. Is that good or bad or ugly or, you know? So I'm waiting for a service that will tell me, okay, this is what you have and this is what it means and this is how you can make certain changes if you wanted to do so. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, starting to understand what these things are telling us and, uh, you know, how, how might we how might we change our lifestyle uh, to, 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 you know, what is a healthy microbiome, what does a healthy microbiome look like, you know? Just those sorts of uh, basic questions, um, I think, still are still in the process of being answered. Hmm. Well, going back to you said in Stalin's army they gave phage medicine to people. What did it look like? Was it a liquid? Was it a pill? And how did they make it? You know, have any context on it? Yeah, I I think the format uh, from from photos was an ampule that you could break open, a sealed ampule, um, and uh, the phage product itself is uh, fairly unremarkable. Um, so, you know, it would be this uh, uh, perhaps uh, slightly uh, yellow from the, the, the residual bacterial growth media um, uh, suspension. Uh, so it, it doesn't look like anything. It would be clear. You could see through it. It might even be colorless. Uh, so it, it will look uh, uh, incredibly unimpressive by eye. But, you know, when used to treat a bacterial infection, it could be very powerful. Do you think that uh, this may play a role in why vaccinations work? You know, if you're injecting dead bacteria, do you think perhaps they're dead because phages have killed them, and so you're actually injecting phages into you as well? Uh, probably not. Um, I, I think the the bacteria um, are are purposefully uh, killed um, using uh, various techniques uh, and and often treated uh, to crosslink uh, certain proteins. So um, I think. Okay. Uh, uh, phages, um, you know, in, in principle could be used to kill the bacteria uh, to prepare a vaccine, uh, but that's not uh, typically the uh, the state-of-the-art process today. Mm, gotcha. Okay. Well, I could ask you uh, 8 million more questions, but I, I sense that the time's running out, so I really appreciate yeah. your time and everything. Um, what, sure, uh, if, you, if when you put it together, uh, you know, you come up with anything else, I'm happy to uh, happy to answer. Yeah, I guess what I'll leave listeners with is any resources to point them to um, in addition to EpiBiome. You know, they can go to your website and all that. Uh, any other resources for interested listeners to find out more about this stuff? Yeah, BioCentury uh, published a really nice piece on uh, on phages and phage therapy. Unfortunately, I think that's behind a paywall. Uh, but the good news is there's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can find just by Googling phages. Uh, I think the Wikipedia article is a great place to start. Um, there's, uh, 
um, you know, there's a, a textbook that was uh, produced, um, uh, has several authors from several of the giants in the, in the field. Um, uh, if people are really interested in, in diving in more, I think it's, uh, I don't remember the exact title, it's, you know, Phages in Our Life or something like that. Um, but, you know, there's no shortage of material out there. And I think phages have really succeeded in capturing the imagination uh, of, of people just because of, you know, how strange they look and how potentially useful they are uh, to humanity. Hmm. All right, well, very good. Well, Nick, I really appreciate you coming on the call. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, in their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.